Hello and welcome to the Until We Arise podcast with Rachel and Veronica, where we bridge a divided people to loving community, empowering resources, and a compassionate Christ. Hey, so welcome to week three of our journey to perfect as I read to you my book, Do You Want to Be Perfect? So this is going to be a long chapter. So I say take it easy. Don't feel rushed. For those of you on the journey currently with us, you have two weeks to complete it. So take your time, process through it. Um, I will give you also another warning. I really try to ask God to let me write about something fun and happy. (laughs) Um, I'm just letting this know right now because if anybody knows me, I'm a pretty, I mean, I can be intense, but I'm also like fun. I like to be silly. So part of me really wanted to ease up the tension of this writing into something more light, but I have to tell you it's not any lighter. Um, Last year, I went through some really hard things with some of my own personal experiences and people that I have um, worked with. And so um, as we walk through this, it's it's not easy. Um, But I believe that um, the lesson and the growth that God has taken me through in the midst of this was worth sharing. And I just really want to be led by God. So I pray that as you go into this chapter, as you listen to it, please, if you have a paper copy or a digital copy, just kind of hold it next to you and kind of walk through some of the wording. Um, but but really um, allow yourself to be transformed a little bit by some of the the different ways we are are going to be forced to think about God and think about ourselves. I know it's really uncomfortable, but it's worth it. Um, it's hard. It's facing some hard truths, but it's worth it. So I really hope that you enjoy chapter three. Have fun. Don't be afraid. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. 1 John 4.18 It was a rushed Friday morning in April of 2019. My mom, Zaniah, and I were planning to go to downtown LA to buy some flowers for our event that was taking place the next day. I was running around gathering lists and color swatches that morning and eventually found myself sitting anxiously in Tyrese as I waited for my shopping buddies to join me and we could get on the road. Tyrese? is my sleek black SUV. Yes, he is named after the soulful 90s R&B singer who changed our lives with the classic love ballad, Sweet Lady. Anyway, as I waited in Tyrese, I honked and hollered out the window for Zaniah to make sure my mom grabbed my coffee. Zaniah was our 12-year-old family friend who my mom was watching while she was on her spring break. She was helpful and quiet and loved spending time with us. I adjusted the air and the radio and contemplated whether or not I should run Tyrese through the car wash. Since time was ticking and the flower market usually closed pretty early, I decided against it. As my to-do list started to pile up, I grew impatient. I tried to calm down from the anxiety of the shopping trip and planning that that needed to get done by scrolling on my phone. I distractedly opened the Bible app, skimmed the verse of the day, and per usual, I ended up on Instagram. I remembered the DM I sent the other day to Brenda, a former student from my youth group. 
I saw on Facebook that she had been in a car accident, so I had messaged her on Instagram saying, praying for you, love you, heart. I checked to see if there was an update or if she had responded. She hadn't even read it, and I thought it was odd since she was always pretty active online. I figured she was busy with family, so I brushed it off. Tap, tap, tap. My mom and Zaniah came up to the window and I was back in go mode. I sped down State Street to knock out this shopping trip so that I could get back to the many other items on my list for the event. My mom started making small talk, but I was quiet and my mind was elsewhere. I could tell she noticed my indifference toward her conversation, so she quieted down. I turned up the music and I drove. At that point, I wasn't sure that she th- I was sure that she thought that I was frustrated because of our late start, but I was fixated on the fact that my former student had not seen my message. I looked over to the passenger seat. Mom, have you heard anything about Brenda? Yeah, Marilyn said it's not looking good. She's in a coma. Her response hit me harder than I expected. Part of me knew it was bad, but I was just so wrapped up in my life that I guess I had overlooked it. Then something came over me. An urgency was tugging at me. I couldn't shake it. She's at USC, right? I asked. Yes, I think so. Let me check. She scanned her text messages and confirmed. Mom, I don't know why, but I feel like we really need to go. She agreed. Okay, Miha, let's go. I think that Marilyn said they're going to take her to li- take her off life support. What? I guess I had been rushing around so much that week that I did not realize the seriousness of the accident. Turned out that she had been in a coma since Tuesday night, and that is why she hadn't replied to my message. That night, she went out to grab a bite, and while she was walking across Whittier Boulevard, only blocks from her home, she was violently hit by a car who sped off and left her lying on the concrete. My heart broke as I realized how bad it was, but selfishly, my mind was still racing about all the things I needed to do for the event. I hadn't spoken with her in years, so I began to hash out the pros and cons for going to the hospital. Rachel, why do you even need to go? What do you have to offer? You haven't even spent any real time with them in years. It will probably be awkward. Everything inside my head was saying to hold off and that I didn't need to go. I continued to drive north on Soto, heading toward the 5 freeway. If we went straight to the flower market now, we could be there by 12, shop, grab a bite, and then go to the hospital and not feel so rushed. I approached the freeway on-ramp, and something in me said, No, go straight. The flowers can wait. So I did. My heart was beating fast and I felt like I needed to be at the hospital. I had no idea why. I rushed into the crowded parking lot. We grabbed our things, locked Tyrese, and power walked to the main entrance. I was deeply conflicted. Part of me was moving quickly because I wanted to check this off the list so we can go downtown. And part of me was keenly aware or keenly sensitive to this spiritual tug. We rushed, got on the wrong elevator, went through a metal detector, rushed past the gift shop, and asked the security guard for directions. My strides were long as we walked the corridor. 
I looked back to see that Zania was on my heels, nearly running, and my mom was trying to fight back her back pain and shuffling as best she could to keep up. I slowed down a little, but my heart began to feel another level of urgency as we got closer to the wing of the hospital where Brenda was staying. My heart was racing and my eyes were wide open, scanning for room numbers and signs. As I turned the corner and saw my pastor, everything paused. My pastor, a man of small stature, is strong and mighty in power and personality. Not only had he been my pastor for most of my life, but he was the man whose preaching sparked a fire in me as a child. He spoke of the love of God, and year after year he shared his powerful testimony of how God saved him from his life of sin and drug addiction. My friends and I could nearly quote his testimony. He was standing in a room, playing Russian roulette with a three fifty-seven Magnum. He cried out to God, If you're real, do something! And God met him. He told us stories of miraculous healings, like raising people from the dead in the middle of the street and tumors popping out of people's bodies with just a word of prayer. His faith inspired me, but how he lived molded me to be the woman I am today. He's not the kind of pastor who sent a proxy or who waited for the convenient time. He is the man who goes out of his way to meet a need. No matter how hard the situation is, he shows up. So when I saw him standing there at the door of the ICU, I knew I was in for more than I had planned that day. He greeted and embraced us. They're calling for the family to say their final goodbyes. It felt like things were moving in slow motion. I was so confused. I asked, so so it's done? Yes. They're pulling the plug in 15 minutes. They're just giving the family some time to come. Mariana, Brenda's mom, called him and we followed him down the hall. He went into the room with the family and we waited outside. I peered into the room as he called out to heaven one last time. He cried out proclaiming life over her body, calling on the power of Jesus. But nothing happened. Her head was wrapped in bandages and her frail body was propped up in the bed. Only a white and blue plastic neck brace held her head in place. I closed my eyes and began to pray. I thought to myself, this couldn't be it. God, why did you draw me here? I really don't know why I had to see this. The little girl in me wanted to be afraid. I wanted to run out of the hospital. I had flashbacks to my dad and other loved ones I had visited in the past. I tried to rationalize with the Lord as I prayed to myself, but my eyes locked in on Brenda. I realized that there was something maturing or growing in me. When I was a child, I would flinch at this kind of trauma. I would cry with an emotional overload in this kind of sadness, or even be struck with fear and terror with the image of death so close. But this was different. I felt the flood of love and compassion drown out the fear. Tears streamed down my face, but I knew I was there for a reason. God pulled me there. 
And that confidence in God's tug kept me locked in. I prayed under my breath in the hallway, pulling out my phone to search for healing scripture, searching for the time Elijah raised the child from the dead. I searched for something that it could equip me quickly for this moment. I didn't know why I was there. Nevertheless, under my breath, I declared the healing scriptures and I prayed and I stood with my feet planted. My pastor ended the prayer inside the room. All the family members embraced and surrounding Brenda, they cried together. Her cousin caressed her face. Her brother spoke softly to his big sister. He told her how he loved her how he wished he could take her place begging her to come back for him and for her kids her mom walked to her phone plugged it in the wall and played an old school hymn from the phone the melody spilled out of the room neighbors and nurses felt the sensitivity of the moment we whispered the lyrics of the song we are standing on holy ground. Mariana looked at her daughter and nodded her head. She wept, accepting that she would be raising her baby girl's children. And I know that there are angels all around the nurses came in and began the process of taking her off of life support so let's just praise jesus now her brother rushed out of the room in tears we are standing in his presence on holy ground the nurses announced that it was done we'd have to wait the beep of the machine slowed down the nurses silenced it there was an unsettling quiet and an unfinished conclusion it was like a dropped call an unanswered text an undelivered email it was not finished, but it was done. I hope The hope for a miracle of a resurrection left the room. I stood frozen in sheer respect for the moment I was sharing with this family. The family began to trickle out of the room to find a place to process and cry. Mariana lingered with her daughter and Brenda's breath grew more faint. As I walked into the room, Mariana threw herself for a short moment into my arms. She's gone, Rachel. Thank you for you how you helped her at boot camp. I felt the heaviness in her embrace, and I held her briefly. Then she released and gathered her cell phone and her purse and left the room. She walked out of the room with her head down but steady, like she always did. She always walked like she was on a mission, working and focused. This time, she had to be strong for different reasons. She had to tell Brenda's little boy 
that his mommy was not coming home. I stayed with Brenda. I looked only at Brenda in that moment. I wanted so badly to see her wake up from this. The family had mostly gone to support Mariana, but one of her cousins stood next to the bed and held Brenda's hand up to her cheek. She cried and told me how cold it was. Then realizing that she didn't know me, she asked me how I knew her cousin. I was her youth leader at church. I stepped closer and stood at the foot of the bed. Looking inquisitively at Brenda's face, I prayed quietly. God, did you bring me here just to watch her die? I never knew it took so long for the heart to stop beating after they took someone off life support. The nurses began to remove more wires and took off her neck brace. Her head flopped to the side. And as they readjusted, I closed my eyes and placed my hands on her feet. Now's a good time to show off, Lord. God, her kids need her. At that moment, I wanted to cry out. I wanted to boldly tell this young woman to rise up like Lazarus. I thought that maybe that was why God called me there. But instead, I held my eyes closed and tears ran down my cheeks. I gazed up to the ceiling above her bed and I listened. I wanted to pray one way, but I opened my mouth and out of my lips spilled. You are good. God, you are good. Overwhelmed with awe, but also overcome with sadness, I gently squeezed her lifeless feet as a goodbye. I stepped back away from her bed. They called her time of death. I looked over at my mom, who could tell I was was worried about me. This is too much, mija. My mom saw past my tough exterior. She knew how fragile I was. And I saw her fear and worry for me. I know, Mom. I'm okay. I hugged her and we left. This time the walk through the massive hospital seemed longer. I walked slowly through the halls and noticed all the doctors and nurses taking their breaks. There were pigeons and sparrows fluttering around the corridor, pecking for crumbs. I walked in the sun to try to melt away the frigidity of what had just occurred. Zanaya and my mom were walking faster than me this time. I wasn't sure what to feel. I was sad and in shock of what I had just walked into, but I was also terrified. God, what would this do to my faith? I had spent years building up my faith to believe that God would come through for us, that God is faithful, that God is good. The next day I was scheduled to speak and share about his goodness. However, aside from the goodness I had proclaimed over Brenda in the final moment, I did not know how to believe that goodness. I had more questions than answers. I was terrified. We got to Tyrese and buckled up. 
As we headed to the flower market, I asked Anaya if she was okay. It had to be a lot for a 12-year-old, even though we had her stay in the waiting room most of the time. She reluctantly shared, and I thought about when Brenda was just a teenager. When Brenda was a teen, she wasn't much of a talker either. She was sassy and very straightforward about a lot of things, but real feelings were off limits. She made herself available to help with various ministry-related tasks like organizing bulletins and serving food, but she maintained a tough exterior. When she became a mom, there was another side of her that emerged, a side that showed passion, love, and determination. She worked hard for her children to have everything they needed and actively sought out opportunities to enrich their lives. She DM'd me once, to ask about a museum she saw that I was visiting, to ask where it was so that she could visit with her little ones. Her death just didn't make sense to me. She had such a full life to live. She was so young. In a daze, I searched for parking in the flower district. We were all trying to understand what had just happened. My mom pointed out, the Lord knows things we don't know. I heard her, but I wrestled. I couldn't imagine what God would know that would allow this to happen. We found the flowers we needed, and I felt shame for how important these things seemed just a few hours before. Now the flowers seemed so trivial. We drove home. Later that night, as I wrestled with the Lord, I felt frustrated, sad, confused. I thought about the boot camp that Mariana referred to. It was the summer of 2008. One night at the camp, Brenda had got in an argument with someone and was really upset. She was overcome, overwhelmed and frustrated and did not want to talk. She sat frozen on the edge of the bed, staring blankly at the wall across the room. I managed to get a few words from her, but she was too upset to talk. I decided to hug her. Her body was stiff, but she let me hold her and I prayed for her. I can't even remember what she was upset about, but that night I saw the scared little girl behind the dark eyeliner. I cradled her head. I pressed my face into her hair in hopes she would find some rest in my arms. She never told me what was going on, but as I held her, I felt her tears fall on my arms. It was a warm moment we never spoke about again. But that night, after watching her slip away, I remembered. I hoped I had done well by her. I hoped she knew that she was loved. I hoped she was in heaven. A couple of days passed, and aside from reposting her family's plea to find the hit-and-run driver on Facebook, I had to move on. I was sad and confused, but I was still leading a ministry, serving in the youth ministry at my church, and I had a lot going on. The Tuesday after she passed, I drove home after a long day and sat in Tyrese before heading into the house to finish up a call with the girl from church who was in the middle of an ugly custody battle. Her daughters were showing signs of sexual abuse, and I sincerely wanted to help her. But I also wanted to tell her I didn't have it in me to help her. I wanted to tell her 
that I was tired and that I was still really struggling. But I knew that that was not going to help her. She needed someone. She didn't even know me very well and was pouring out her darkest secrets. After praying with her and ending the call, I sat in Tyrese to just breathe for a second. I started shooting off some invites to our next event via text. A a response came through rather rapidly. It was from a former coworker, so I was surprised by the speedy response. Unfortunately, it was not about the event. Hey, Rachel, you hear about the bad news? We need prayers, she texted. What's up? What happened? I reluctantly responded, knowing that I probably wasn't ready for what she was about to share. Real sensitive info. Julio was shot, not gang-related. I was numb. He's in ICU. My brain had to scan my Rolodex of former students, but before I asked his last name, she sent a picture of him at his graduation. I was his principal for a little while. I remembered him. I zoomed in on the photo to realize that I knew his mom as well. I knew her from a different school site. She was my office administrator for a few months. In the picture, they were both smiling so proudly. Looking back, I realized that was a moment they would never have again. I was moved, but I really didn't have it in me to even think about it. I had been up since 5 a.m., and it was probably after 9 p.m., and my body and emotions were drained. I was so tired. I didn't want to respond. But as I walked into the house, I remembered the last time I saw Julio. I put my things down and texted back, OMG, wait, he was just at the poetry event. Man, I'm praying. She confirmed he was there. Yes, it seems like it seems his car was hit by another car. The car followed him and the other car shot him. I will keep you posted. Thank you. And with that, I sat alone with my thoughts. I didn't want to trivialize these situations to be all about me, but I couldn't help but feel the heaviness. I was being pressed. The next day, I texted a couple of other teachers, and everyone was stopping by the hospital to pay their respects. I honestly didn't want to go. It was just last Friday that I was in Brenda's room, but there was that tug again. I decided to call my pastor. He didn't know the family, but he didn't hesitate. He asked what hospital, and he said he would be there in an hour. I headed to the hospital to meet him and to see Julio. It had only been six days since I was last in an ICU room. Since it was a school day, no students were there to visit. His siblings and his mom had spent the night there and were just waking up. The strain of the past couple of days was written all over their faces. When Diana, his mom, saw me, we embraced. She cried. I'm so sorry, I whispered, and she began to give me the rundown. She didn't care that I hadn't spoken to her in almost two years. She poured out her heart. I told her my pastor was coming to pray, and I asked if that was okay. She was more than okay to receive prayer. She too was a believer. Julio also knew the Lord. When my pastor showed up, he had that same look he had last week at Brenda's room.
I could only imagine the strain he was feeling. We explained that Julio was only 19 years old and he was pronounced brain dead the night of the shooting. In faith, he and I walked with Diana into Julio's room in the ICU at St. Francis Medical Center. We were believing for a miracle. My pastor prayed with the same passion and fervor I saw him pray just last week. It was the same fire he prayed with oh so many years ago in my dad's hospital room. After the prayer, Diana and my pastor spoke a little as she explained to him what had happened and what the doctors were saying. I talked to his younger sister who had spent the night in the chair in his room. That normally wasn't allowed, but Julio was taking her to soccer practice and she was in the car with him when he was shot. I spoke with her for a bit and honestly, I had no words. I felt like I was being tested, so I gave the right answers. I told her that it would be okay. I told her that God loved her. I told her not to feel blame and to trust God. We are here with you. She looked up at me from the chair. She was trying to be polite, but she was tired physically and emotionally. I went so badly to believe that I, what I was telling her. But it was hard with the sounds of Brenda's hospital room still playing in my head. I felt like my faith was in a tourniquet. Part of me was negotiating with God. Like, okay, I see what you're doing, God. I see that you are trying to see if my faith is gone. You want me to prove that I still believe. You want me to continue to believe that you will raise him up. So I did. I went to the hospital to pray with Diana and I called to encourage her and check on Julio's status. On Saturday, Diana texted me that they were going to take him off life support on Monday morning and harvest his organs that afternoon. I told her full of faith, I guess we have until Monday for God to do a miracle. I wanted to leave no room for doubt. I believed that he could. I believed that God would do it. Saturday, I sent out messages to prayer warriors. Sunday at church, we lifted him up in prayer. Early Monday morning, I was startled awake by a vivid dream. I saw Julio smiling. You could say it was just a dream and I was manifesting what was occupying my thoughts, but this felt different. It felt spiritual and it felt like God was showing me more than just my own inflated emotion. In this dream, there was a beautiful light behind him and his grin was bright, slightly laughing and innocent and full of joy. Not like the Julio I saw in the ICU. Not even like the Julio I saw a few weeks before at the open mic. That night at the open mic, he was burdened and heavy and acutely aware of the reality of the hood. It was like he was almost aware of the pain that his family would be feeling for him only a few weeks later. I honestly woke up overjoyed. Julio was happy. He was at peace. In my mind, in the 11th hour, God was going to pull through. I got ready to meet Diana and my pastor and the family at the hospital. Surely today I was going to see a miracle. I thought to myself, and I believed it in my heart. I grabbed my cup of coffee, jumped in Tyrese, and drove to the hospital. When I got there, I gently told Diana, 
I believe that God can turn this around. I knew she wanted to believe with me. I also saw the truth in her eyes. Her son was pronounced brain dead six days ago. She saw his body grow more frail with each passing day. She saw his skin change as she had stayed the night, night after night with him. She heard the doctor's reports. I shared my dream and she smiled. The family had gathered and when my pastor showed up, we all went into the room for one last prayer. I quietly agreed in prayer as my pastor prayed again for a miracle. I peered through my half-shut eyes for something. A wiggled finger, a blink of the eye, something. Just one jump on the monitor would suffice. Something to cling to. Worship went up and my pastor's bellowing voice rolled through the whole wing of the ICU, calling for Julio to awaken. Nothing. My heart broke again. Was this all a hoax, God? Why? Why is this happening? The family gathered. The nurses began the process to take him off life support. After a few words with Diana, my pastor left. I quickly said my goodbyes and followed him. I asked if I could walk with him to the car. I needed to talk. As we walked, he shared that he had been dealing with at least four other deaths since Brenda's. He expressed that it always hurt more when they were young. I listened and thought about how strong he was. I couldn't fathom that kind of faith. How do you do it, Pastor? I asked. How do you keep believing and keep praying when it doesn't happen? He explained to me how he used to fight and pray for a resurrection. He said there were times he would even go into the morgue and send everyone out and cry out to God for a miracle. He would pray and fight so hard until one day God asked him what he was doing and told him to stop, let them go. We walked and talked a bit more and he assured me that he kept praying because there were times when they did wake up. There were times when they were healed. He prayed for me and I thanked him for coming and for his wisdom. With a heavy heart, I walked back to Tyrese. This was not the happy ending I expected today. If God was good all the time, why didn't he move? Why didn't he give this young man another chance? I sat in Tyrese pondering my pastor's words, thinking about what my mom said the previous week about God knowing better than we do. I sat alone. I reflected on all the sadness I had just experienced. I felt the pain that Mariana and Diana were carrying. I thought of their siblings, Julio's sisters, Brenda's kids. I sat. I cried. I didn't understand. I reminisced on the last time I saw Julio alive. The poetry event was only two to three weeks before, and it was in honor of Nipsey Hussle, the rapper and community activist that was slain in front of his store. That night, Julio gathered with so many of the people from the community and from the school I used to work at to honor those that we had lost. The same day Nipsey Hussle died, Tayshawn Logan was shot and killed in Vegas. 
He was 19 years old and was one of my students. Julio and the rest of our little Watts poetry community honored the fallen together that night. Since it was an open mic, Julio stood up and shared a powerful poem, expressing the heavy reality of the streets and the violence he dealt with regularly. It weigh, it descri- he described how it weighed on him. I also stood up at the open mic and decided to share. I didn't have a poem, but I shared a bit of hope. Then I sipped my coffee and I suddenly remembered a very vivid moment of that night. I remembered as I spoke, I called out Julio. He and I were not close, but I told him clearly from across the room filled with at least 60 people, do not be afraid. Those words feel eerie now. I told the crowd and I told him that perfect love drives out fear. I told him perfect love of God drives out fear. It was not a religious event, but they let me share. I sat down quickly. Why was I recalling this now? Julio was gone now. I wrestled with God for days. I didn't understand what he wanted from me. It was more than I could take. At Julio's funeral, I sat in the back row with my former colleagues. The preacher spoke of the hope of salvation. The room was filled with an overall feeling of loss. Lost dreams, lost opportunities, and lost hope. When the floor was open for comments, his former classmates and family members began to pour out memories of the adventures they had and the highlights of their times together. I sat quietly in the back, observing, recognizing the importance for those close to the family to share and to mourn. One student stood up. She was a familiar face. I was her principal and she was at the school at the same time as Julio. Her speech was almost incoherent all over the place, which can be expected for such a difficult time. She shared about good times, and even though a few curse words slipped out, there was a general acceptance of the slightly off behavior. She returned to her seat and comforted her fussy infant. A few more people stood up and shared their heartfelt moments and their passionate and respectful goodbyes. Then after a few minutes, the young lady who spoke before got up and approached the mic for a second time. At that point, I and the other teachers in the row remembered her more vividly. We remembered remembered the excuses she had for missing class and her other outrageous stories. This was not looking good. She started to ramble, curse, and talk about herself and how she was feeling. The audience was squirming, and it was evident that something needed to be done. The pastor that was presiding over the service just stood there. The funeral director stood in the corner and did nothing. Then my teacher friends looked over at me and said, Rachel, you have to do something. I felt the tug too. But what was I supposed to do? What could I do? Why me? So with a little push from my colleagues and the realization that no one was going to put an end to this, I walked up to the front of the church and stood behind the young lady. I gently placed my hand on her back, lightly rubbing her shoulder to let her know her time was up. I cautiously took the mic. When I looked up, I was in front of I was front and center and everyone was looking at me. 
With Mike in hand, I realized I had to say something. There were some students I knew, but the vast majority of the crowd were people I did not know. I saw the relief on so many faces as a young lady stepped down. Silent thank yous were conveyed as people nodded their heads towards me. His mother's eyes were puffy, but it was like they were begging me for some light. I didn't know if I had it in me. I looked over at her at the open coffin and caught a glimpse of Julio in his L.A. Dodgers gear. I didn't know what to say. I didn't feel wise or eloquent. Feeling unprepared, I decided to share what I felt. I felt sad. I felt confused. I told them about the dream I had. I spoke directly to his mom. I told her that I was believing with her. That I hoped he would come back. As I spoke, it was like pieces started to make sense. I told her that I thought I knew what the dream meant. Even though at first I didn't want to believe it, I understood that the smile that I saw in Julio's face showed me that he was at peace, that he was free. At that moment, there was a faith that built up inside of me. And I told her about how I told her son not to be afraid. I told the crowd that God's perfect love casts out all fear. Julio was no longer afraid. I returned to my seat. It was all so surreal. I had no way of knowing the power of the words that I would share with Julio that night at the poetry event. I thought I was telling him not to fear things like the ugly violence in the world. I thought I was telling him that he would be okay and to keep persevering in love. I now know he would need the message for the journey he was about to face. When I got home, I took off my funeral clothes. My eyes welled up with tears as I tried to piece together what God was showing me. I always found myself in these moments where I was pushed into circumstance that was more than what I expected. For a person who likes to plan and to know what's ahead, these situations can be really terrifying. Had I known that Friday that I was going to walk into the hospital to witness Brenda's last moments on earth, I probably would not have gone. Had I known the importance of those words I shared with Julio that night at the open mic event, I probably would not have shared them. The anxiety and the pressure would have overwhelmed me. Agreeing to walk with God and to take the risk of being complete in Him, walking in perfection is hard. It's like the awareness of walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and observing the depth and the beauty. It is the idea of knowing how great walking with the Lord can be while taking real assessment of the risk. The Grand Canyon is so massive and so overwhelming that the awareness of its greatness can be too much to take in. The thought that with one wrong step it could all be over is good enough reason to just stay as far from the edge as possible. And oftentimes it is in the face of that fear that the Lord is holding us by the hand right on the rim of the canyon saying, Do you trust me? The fear of failure or the possibility of greatness can be paralyzing for me. 
It is more than being afraid of death or pain, but more the fear of perfection with the Lord. Fear had been holding me back for so long, and I was learning that I had to stop being afraid of what it meant to be all in with Jesus. I needed to stop being afraid of making moves that would make an impact or cause waves. I needed to stop being afraid of being abandoned. What if I could not persevere in my walk with God? What if I let everyone down? Would God leave me hanging? I guess I hadn't realized, but one of my biggest reasons I struggled with perfection was because it was rooted in fear. As a child, I didn't want to make mistakes, not because I would be whipped, but the big things in the world scared me. Loneliness, abandonment, rejection, failure, shame. These things drove me to my success. I learned how to fight to make things work in order to avoid failure. I had to fight to make things function properly to avoid shame. I had to be organized to avoid rejection. I made so many fear-based decisions that had positive outcomes. My need to be organized meant I graduated college. My fear of shame meant I saved myself from marriage. These outcomes could be misread as great and positive things, but I was motivated by fear. I knew all my sinful tendencies, my weaknesses, my flaws, so I feared that the harshness of this world would break me once a weakness was brought to the light. There was a fragility that I carried with me that I felt I had the, I had the responsibility to protect. Holy and trusting in God scared me. I saw the character and the strength of the people like my pastor had, and I couldn't compare. There was this, there was the, this was the hardest way I could ever imagine learning this lesson. But in order to overcome fear, I suppose we must face it. I am just glad that even though I felt alone, I wasn't. The reality was harsh, but the Lord was gentle. I wanted a miracle for both of these young people. The fear I was facing was not only rooted in the loss itself, but more so in the disappointment and the lo- and what the disappointment and the loss would do to my understanding of God. I wanted God to be simple, like I want his actions to be I'm hurting and he gives me a band-aid and makes the pain go away. I'm frustrated, he gives me my way. I'm scared of the dark, so he turns on the light. But what would happen if I pushed and I prayed and I failed? What if my faith didn't make it through the crucible? What if I believed and I didn't see it happen? Would everything that I had built my faith on fall apart? Would I slip back into hopelessness again? We often act as though God is as fragile as our faith in him. We believe that if we cannot justify or defend him, or if we don't believe in him strongly enough, he will cease to be true, or he will cease to be powerful. The reality is, our God is mighty. Our God is strong. He is enough. 
whether we believe or not, does not change who he is. In Exodus 3, when Moses encounters the burning bush, he is told to remove his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. He learned God's name, I am. The ever-present character of God's identity is who Moses is introduced to that day. God was speaking to me even as Brenda's mom was played that song, We Are Standing on Holy Ground, in that hospital room. I remembered it because it seemed like an odd choice for the moment. But not only was Mariana declaring God's holiness or his perfection in that moment, but the Lord was preparing me for this journey. At that burning bush, Moses encountered the awe and beauty of the Father. In the brightness of the light and the heat of the flame, he encountered the terror of an all-powerful God. In that moment, God drew in Moses, but he also told him, come no closer. The holiness and the greatness of God is beautiful, but it is not for the faint of heart, per se. As we cry out to encounter God, as we cry out for his presence, as we say yes to a life with him, we are saying yes to living by another set of rules, another set of standards. Not in the sense of the traditional religious standard of not drinking and not cussing, but like really another level of access to commune with him, to be with the great I am. It is not an average life of chasing dreams, running from fear, and trying to make the most of the scraps we are given. It is one of face-to-face communion with God, freeing the enslaved, parting seas, and miraculous provision. I am not so naive to believe that these young people died just to teach me a lesson. God is not petty or simple in that way. However, my being there was undoubtedly orchestrated by God, and it was entirely hinged on my willingness to say yes to his call, the tug. It was that tug that drew me to the hospital and to the front of that church, that tug that held Brenda and that tug that called out Julio at the open mic. It was that same tug that drew Moses to the burning bush, the place where he would have the most awesome and terrifying encounter of his life. It is where he heard the voice of God and met the great I am face to face. I would venture to say that in the midst of these challenging circumstances, the Lord was inviting me to a new level of intimacy with him face to face. Later in Moses' life, in Numbers 12, God rebukes Moses' brother, Aaron, and his sister Miriam for being jealous and talking bad about Moses behind his back. He tells them that he has a special connection with Moses, that unlike other prophets who get visions, he talks with Moses face to face. The Lord was making a distinction about the level of intimacy he desired with his chosen people. He was setting the stage for the kind of love and intimacy he would make available for us 
through Christ. The beautiful thing is God loves us all with the same fervor and passion. He longs to be face to face with us. In the book of 1 John, where we learn about the power and the depth of God's love as it pertains to fear, when John states that perfect love casts out fear, he is speaking authoritatively, not only as a follower of Christ or a convert, but as one who knew the love of God face to face. He had walked with the Lord. The whole passage of chapter 4 is enveloped in the idea of God's love as the foundation of our confidence and boldness in the Lord. John lived it and seemed to make it his duty to share with the people that side of Jesus. He was the gospel writer that often included himself into the storyline as the one whom Jesus loved. I can only imagine the intimacy of love that John must have felt. It had to be beautiful and terrifying to know how flawed he was and to still be loved beyond measure. To witness the love of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He even witnessed the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is undeniably a fulfillment of a promise Jesus left as a comfort for his people. I am sure John longed for the Lord. But how good God is to leave the Holy Spirit for John, for us. John saw it all. He was able to eat with Jesus He saw the great works he did, but he also witnessed his death. He experienced the moment when he came back and left again. He was able to understand the fear and beauty of God's love that was special. So that when he says that perfect love drives out fear, he is stating it confidently and boldly because he experienced it. He knew what perfect and complete love looked like. He understood that it included the hard times and even the time when people manipulated it and rejected it. He knew that complete love meant hard lessons and it meant being the hand to reach out for in times of need, not the one to run from. John watched his friend Peter walk on water and watched Jesus grab him by the hand. John watched Jesus tell Peter to feed his sheep even after he denied him three times. It is a perfect love that is not dependent on circumstance, our level of commitment or involvement. God loved us in spite of us. God loves us. God will always love us. While Moses was instructed not to come any closer to the burning bush, John experienced another side of the Father that drew people near to him. In Jesus' sacrifice, we are offered to have that face-to-face intimacy with God. This face-to-face is honest and bare. It has nothing to hide. 
It trusts God right to the edge of one's own limitations. It is an invitation to experience his love and power in our everyday lives. In the face of our worst fears, perfect love invites us to embrace the sovereignty of God as one who we can trust and who will not let us down. I spent so much time in fear of what I was doing wrong and how I compared to others that I missed the completeness and perfection of God's love. I was concerned with how sinful I was and how much I screwed up. And I somehow allowed that to construct my perception of God's love for me. However, his love isn't like that. His love drives out fear. 1 John 4.18 He was not punishing me or trying to belittle me in moments of hardship in order to prove how right he was and how wrong I was. He has nothing to prove. He is the I am. Even though I was maturing in my walk with God, I had experienced and I had experienced his greatness, so I thought, Even when my dad was sick, my faith was still tied to the positive results. I needed results that I could justify. My presence in the hospital rooms of my former students had a number of purposes, which I can unpack later. But the resurrection and physical healing that I desired was not one of them. They were believers and we fought for their return. It did not happen. Before this, I was hooked on the idea that there was an area of my faith that would remain subpar until I saw a real miracle, like a full-on wheelchair miracle or an arm-grow-back miracle. But it seemed that the Lord wanted to shake me out of that mentality. I spent a long time believing that I could avoid coming face-to-face with death. But the reality was that facing what scared me was part of the process of perfection. Not everyone we pray for will be healed. And not everyone will come back from the dead. Not every desire we have will come to pass. And there will be hardships we have to endure. Facing that reality has made my faith stronger than ever before. God does do miracles. We should pray and cry out to him for the things we desire. He is our healer. He is our provider. But above all that, he is the great I am. I no longer fear what would happen if I prayed and the desired outcome didn't happen. I can confidently say that God is still good. I can say that he still leaves nothing undone. It is one thing to say yes to God and another thing to keep saying yes as he desires to draw us closer to him. Closer means connecting in the midst of fear. I would have been fine going straight to the flower market, sitting quietly at the poetry event, sitting back quietly at the funeral, However, it seemed the Lord wanted to perfect me. 
What are the fears you are facing? Have you felt this tug in your heart? Many times the things we avoid and the things we are most terrified to face, to discuss, or to even think about are the very things that will bring us breakthrough. Those are the things the Lord desires to heal in us. Why? Because I would venture to say that I am not the only one who has allowed fear to dictate my life's path. I cannot be the only one who has allowed fear to form my understanding of God's character. Is there a fear you have about getting too close to God? Is there a fear you feel about being so close to the edge that you might lose God? Is there a fear that you might run into something that will shatter your faith? If God is leading you to it, follow the tug, face the fear. The Lord will not let you fall. So that was chapter three. Um, I'd like to apologize for all the moments of like voice cracking. It's still a very raw situation for me. So there are moments not only writing, but every time I read it that I get emotional. And so I know undoubtedly there are things that are going to shake you. Um, And it's not just because of the sadness of the darkness of these moments, but the awareness of what God is doing in my life and how much he loves me can be really crazy. And I think it's overwhelming sometimes to be kind of moved by the greatness of God, his goodness. And um, as he's been revealing more and more of this to me, uh, I just have been broken and excited about what this could mean for so many of us as we grow deeper and grow stronger i know a lot of times we want to just run and say no i just want it easy i just want to go on and go about my day with just going to church on sunday and and doing all these other things that just make your life quote unquote easier but trust me there's so much freedom and confidence and there's weights that you've been carrying that you don't have to carry anymore so pause take the time slow down journal and if you have not joined a crew you can more than welcome to join a crew go to our website check out how you can be a part of a crew just sign up again if you don't have the digital copy sign up if you haven't heard about our brunch check out the next dates that are on our calendar so you can join us online for our online brunch There are so many resources there for you. I have Bible study videos that tie in with all of this. So you definitely want to jump on board and and be a part of this journey to perfect. So with that, have an awesome couple of weeks. Our next release will be in two weeks for chapter four. Good stuff. You're going to love it. And with that, I would like to invite you, if you have not already subscribed to this podcast, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Also, you can check us out at our website at www.untilwearise.org. And you can also find us on almost every social media platform at Until We Arise. 